Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. The topic, please participate by listening. The recording equipment will not be turned off for any reason. If you wish to share, please speak directly into the microphone so the listener can follow you. And we have a microphone down here, and we have chairs right here. Um, If you do not wish to be recorded, we invite you to participate by listening or attending another session. Please do not touch any of the recording equipment. Um, With that, um, I believe we're ready to get started. Good morning, everybody. I'm Dave, and I'm a recovering sexaholic. And by the grace of God in this fellowship and all of you people, I've been sexually sober since August 1st, 1985, something for which I am frequently but never sufficiently grateful. Um, I thought, you know, typically when I do one of these, um, um, I spend a lot of head time thinking about what I want to say. And... uh, what I try to do is uh, take a moment and say, you know, what does God want me to say today? And uh, I think it's really funny because I've I've written out this talk a couple of times, and I the first time that I I wrote it out, I uh, I left that at home um, when I came came to San Antonio, so it's sitting in my uh, next to my chair in my bedroom and. Uh, and so on the plane coming down here, I rewrote it, and I had it in my book, and um, and I left my book in here last night uh, when I was listening to my sponsor speak. So, you know, I've done this a couple times um, in the last 32 years, so I think I can probably kind of remember it, and i got to trust that uh, it's going to be just the way it's supposed to be. Um, so my qualifiers... Um, my addiction takes the form, took the form of compulsive masturbation, use of pornography, uh, fantasy, sexualizing, objectifying, um, dependency relationships. Um, I'm just conscious that a non-member is in the room, so we'll just. Uh, so you started when I was uh, introduced. Uh, by a neighbor kid uh, to some pictures when I was eight years old. And uh, he was he was 14. He had uh, gone through puberty. And uh, I know that because uh, he encouraged me to undress uh, as he did. And uh, uh, I found all this really exciting and stimulating, and um, I was hooked from that very. I, I can still remember that picture. It was a, it was a, uh, a picture that was uh, appeared to come from you know the drugstore back back in those days. You had your film developed at a drugstore. It, it appeared to be one of those kind of pictures. I don't, but it, I think it had to have been professionally done. But whatever it is. Um, yeah, that became the image that uh, has always been my biggest trigger. Um, and I can, like I said, I can remember that picture. It was very tame in terms of, you know, what's available out there today. Uh, I instinctively knew that that was not something that I was going to tell my parents. Um, you know, that was my secret. And uh, we engaged in this behavior for for a while, and it, it, it escalated to the point where he, at one point, uh, was indicating uh, I, he he was never aroused. Uh, I was always aroused, 
and you know, at eight years old, um, turns out that was eight to nine years before I even went through puberty. I was very, I was a very late bloomer. So, um, at, at one point, uh, he suggested that I put his penis in my mouth, and uh, I couldn't bring myself to do that, and and that's where it stopped. Um, I realize now that that. Yeah, I was a victim of sexual abuse. Um, he knew better. I, I didn't. Um, but from from that point forward, I was I was really hooked with images, and still am today. Um, it only takes me a nanosecond to see a shape or a form that uh, meets the criteria. And you guys know what the criteria is for you. I know it is. It takes a nanosecond for me to recognize it. Um, the good news is that after 32 years, it's gotten better, but it hasn't gone away. Um, it's 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 there every day. I'm, I'm conscious of it every day. Um, but the good news is that today I don't have to act upon you know that stimulus. Um, so that's where it started. Um, fast forward. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about today is, uh, you know, a lot of life has happened in the 32 years that I've been in this program. And uh, I wanted to give you a sense of what the program was like when I came in in 1985. Um, we were paranoid, at least my group in Rochester, New York, was paranoid uh, about uh, disclosure and, and being found out. Um, we were we were afraid of being infiltrated by somebody that was going to make a big deal of, out of what we were doing. And so we developed right, wrong. I don't know where we got this from, but um, we interviewed people before they came to a meeting. You know, in Nashville, um, you know, when I moved to Nashville in 1988, there were two meetings, okay? They're now probably, in the course of a week, there are probably 50-plus, Okay. When I moved there in 1988, there were two meetings. In Rochester, New York, there was one. And uh, um, so we got into the uh, practice of screening people before they came to a meeting. So, uh, you know, we let central office know who we were, uh, uh, a pers pers prospective uh, candidate would contact us. We would, two of us would meet them at a neutral location and see if they were serious. Uh, we were afraid of being, you know, that they were people from the press. I, I didn't even think about it, but I, you know, um, somewhere in the 2000s, uh, I found out that they still do that in Rochester. They still do that. Um, in Nashville, um, we have we have newcomers walking in all the time, and they find us from the website because you know we've we've got all of our we've got our meeting schedule on the on the website, so. If you if you want to find out about this problem, um, it's it's pretty easy. But the way I found out about it, um, you know, uh, as I said, I was I was hooked on 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 images, uh, visually stimulated. Um, but I had this overwhelming desire to to be physical with a with a woman uh, from a very early age. Yeah, you know, I found out later that that uh, that was because. In my family of origin, I was being stimulated by a female, which turned out to be my mother. Okay, uh, it wasn't overt sexual abuse, but um, I used to watch her getting dressed. Um, she used to talk to me as she got dressed. She she worked the second shift, an office job, and uh, I could remember sitting at, on the edge of the bed as she put on her nylons, and uh, and she was very attractive, and so. Um, People my age typically don't get sexually stimulated unless they are being stimulated is, is what I found in my recovery and, and, uh, and, and subs subsequent therapies and everything else that I went through. Um, so I, I developed very, uh, physically very late in life. I didn't really start dating until college and, uh, but what I really wanted to do is make physical contact. And uh, I thought that was the answer to my problems. Everybody, you know, I, I went to college starting in 1970. 
This was the age of free love. Everybody I knew was trying to score. Um, you know, of course, that's who I was hanging out with. And uh, um, so I thought, you know, I just had a very healthy um, drive uh, to connect with a woman. And uh, uh, it took me a while. I didn't ex- have sexual intercourse until I was 21. But when I did, I, I thought I died and gone to heaven. I said, man, this is this is great. Um, I remember telling somebody, it sure beats going to the movies, you know, with a girl. Um, but nevertheless, you know, I didn't see anything wrong with what I was doing. You know, I, I was living in my head. Um, I masturbated all the time. You know, uh, my, my, my sponsor gave a talk yesterday. You know, it was my, it's what got me going in the morning. It, it's what put me to sleep at night. It's how, how I dealt with any anxiety in my life, uh, is I masturbated and it made me feel better. And I, and it heightened the sensation when I looked at, looked at pictures and did it at the same time. That was my perfect MO. But I really thought, particularly once I had intercourse, that, man, that's, this is the greatest. And, uh, I had a good job. Um, I got transferred. Uh, to a to a new city, I, I moved from Ohio to Rochester, New York. Um, I got introduced to this very attractive woman. Um, it took us five minutes, four or five months. You know, typically my relationships lasted about three months. And uh, with this woman, I did not have sex with her until we were about five months in, which was you know this had to be something really special. Turns out, you know, she was involved with somebody else, and that's why it happened. But Nevertheless, um, she seemed to like sex as much as me. She fit all the, she checked all the boxes. She was smart. She had a great job. Uh, she was physically uh, the woman of my dreams. Uh, we got married. Uh, I threw out my stash. Uh, you know, I was subscribing. I didn't have the courage uh, to buy Playboys or penthouses or whatever at the at the store. Uh, but I subscribed, and uh, I canceled my subscription to Penthouse. I threw out my stash. You know, when I got married, that was that was that was going to be it. I, I really thought that, and uh, it didn't take long before the masturbation creeped back in. And then pretty soon, I was getting up and looking at images on the TV, and and uh, um, I was masturbating in, in, with her sleeping next to me in bed. I, I was masturbating after we had sex. I was still fantasizing about every woman that I saw. Um, had no clue that this was an issue. I, I really didn't. Um, our marriage seemed to be okay. Um, but I do remember uh, after having an argument with her one day, uh, um, as I was driving to work and just feeling, I was feeling a lot of stress at work. Um, I just had this major argument and I, I, I remember driving to work and, and hammering on the steering wheel. Um, boy, I'm really happy now. You know, I had everything I thought would make me happy and I, and I, and here I am saying, boy, I'm really happy now. And then the, 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 the first of several spiritual things happened to me. One of, um, my best friend from college called me, uh, all excited. He had this spiritual experience. He had a, had a, one of those white light moments, and uh, um, he, it was a, a Christian experience. And uh, now this this is my best friend from college who had a porno stash, who during college was had, had gotten married but was having an affair with his wife's best friend. Um, so put things in perspective. Uh, he was my best friend. And uh, he had this experience. And I could tell that something had happened. He was different. And um, he was so convincing about it that I began to think, well, maybe there's something to this. Uh, I had grown up in the church, um, but I had pretty much, uh, when I went to college, that's when it stopped. So now we're... I got married in 1980, so now we're in the early 80s, and uh, I started going back to church. Now, my wife and I were of different uh, 
um, persuasions. She was Catholic and I was a Protestant. And I didn't feel comfortable in the Catholic Church. And so I went back to the church of my uh, beginnings. And uh, I began to entertain the idea that, you know, me doing things my way uh, wasn't resulting in happiness. And then the first first one of those, so the, the first one was, you know, something's missing. Um, the second one was I began to become aware of all my sexualizing of every woman that I saw. Um, it happened at the bowling alley one night. In Rochester, New York, in the wintertime, you either, you either find a winter sport or you bowl. And uh, I got on the company bowling, bowling team, and I'm at the bowling alley. I'm married, have a beautiful wife, and there were several women from work. The men bowled right next to the women. And I, I realized one night I could not take my eyes off of them. I checked, I was checking out body parts. I was sexualizing them. Um, and I tried to control it. I tried not to do it. And it was impossible. I, I, I could not stop. And that, that perplexed me. Um, and it surprised me. So here I am, um, you know, something's missing. You know, I think the answer could be God. Um, I'm doing something that I'm, I'm, I'm realizing is kind of counter to my newfound values, but I can't stop it. Still didn't put the pieces together, though. Um, I ended up changing jobs, and, and uh, uh, I co-opt with the world's largest number one industrial company in the world at the time. Um, I had a great career. But my, my spouse was, was connected to another major co- corporation that's based in Rochester, New York. And, uh, she didn't want to leave. And I, my career path was going to take me from there. And, and, uh, um, so I, I decided I would quit my job. I, I worked, I got a job with another company. And, uh, I had two weeks off between jobs. And I turned on the TV one morning, uh, primarily to, to get a hit. Uh, I turned on the Phil Donahue show, which back in the 80s had, had become pretty provocative. And I, I turned it on. Uh, you know, he was one of the originators of talk radio. He, and he started in my hometown, Dayton, Ohio. Um, he was out of Chicago by then. And I turned it on to get a hit. And um, there was a guy sitting behind a glass screen, so you couldn't see who he was. And he was talking about the fact that he had a stash of pornography that he uh, compulsively masturbated, and he did this in secret, and that he was addicted. It took my breath away. I, I sat down, and I said, you know, this guy's telling my story. The topic that day was sexual addiction. A guy had written a book. Uh, and that was the title of the book. Um, it's got a different title today. It's called Out of the Shadows. But uh, So this was February 1984. I was dumbstruck. But again, instinctively, I'm not going to tell my wife about this. I, I'm, I'm a sex addict. And I, I, I identified immediately. You know, that, that's what I was. What it, what it didn't offer that day, or I didn't hear it, was what's the solution? And so, um, how are we doing here? A few months later, my wife tells me she's not happy in our marriage. Um, I'm, again, dumbstruck. I don't think that this has anything to do with that. So I'm certainly not going to bring that up. Uh, we start getting some marital counseling. We do that for a couple of months. Of course, I didn't know that this impacted my ability to be intimate with anybody. <laughs> I had no clue. I knew I was an addict, but I still didn't, you know, since I, I wasn't physically cheating on her, um, I, I had no concept of how this might affect my ability to be intimate with her. And uh, 
after a few months, she just came to me and says, I'm, I'm leaving. And uh, I was devastated. I was devastated. Um, I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't concentrate at work. Uh, it affected my work performance. She moved out. I started seeing another counselor who happened to be a psychiatrist. And uh, um, do you have my book? No. no. Um, somebody found my book. I found out. Anyway, I had some notes in there. But anyway. Um, and so I started seeing this psychiatrist. I ended up having to take about a, a month off of work because I, I was about to be fired. And I knew I was debilitated. And, um, and so I took about four weeks off. And during that time, I finally mustered up the courage to tell my psychiatrist, hey, I don't know that this has anything to do with anything except that I have a problem with sex. And he pulled out his drawer, and he, he was looking at something, and he, and he wrote down on, on a piece of paper, um, S.A., P.O. Box 300, Simi Valley, California. And he slid it across the table. He said, this people, this, this, this group might be able to help you. I, I had no clue what S.A. stood for. <laughs> and I know, and I'm not sure that I would have written a letter. Uh, but I went home that day, and I, and I wrote a letter, and I said, I think I have a problem with sexual addiction. And uh, I mailed it off. Um, it went to Simi Valley, California, where our founder lived and uh, ran this fellowship out of his garage. And a couple weeks later, I get this, I get this pamphlet in the mail. And by this time, my, my spouse had moved out of our yuppie dream house. And um, I opened it up. I still remember where I was in the house when I opened it up. And I read the problem. And I read the solution, and I broke down and cried. Um, I answered positively probably 18 out of the 20 questions on that on that um, on that pamphlet. And I said, you know, this is the answer. You know, God. By then, I had I was going back to church regularly, and uh, um, my wife had left. I was having trouble on my job. Um, but somehow this fellowship and God and this fellowship were going to, we're going to make things right. And I believe that, um, that was in May of, uh, 1985. We had to sell the house. You know, I had to go back to work. I got reassigned to another job and, uh, I got a phone call by a guy named Vince. He said, uh, I understand that you contacted central office. Uh, are you going to come to a meeting? Would you like to come to a meeting? And this was August. This was two months later. And by then, uh, you know, the last time I acted out was uh, July 31st, 1985. And uh, um, I remember that very well because uh, I was about to move out of my house. My parents had come to help me move. And... Out of pure, it was the only thing I knew how to do was to masturbate. And the next day we moved. I moved into a blue-collar neighborhood um, uh, a block away from a facility that uh, was run by this other major corporation in, in Rochester. Uh, they have yellow boxes. That's what they call it, the big yellow box. And... Uh, I think 30,000 people worked in this facility, and I'm a, I'm a block away from it. Um, and uh, I went to my first meeting that next week um, on a Wednesday, and it was in a mental health facility. Um, the uh, All the clients were lined up in white outfit smoking cigarettes. So you had to run the gauntlet to walk into this facility where we had our meeting. There were three other guys there at that at that meeting. Vince was there uh, leading the meeting, and he opened up by saying he was five months sober. And it knocked me off my chair. 
five months. You know, in that year and a half that I knew I was a sexaholic, I had tried countless times to stop. And about the best I could do was about two weeks of white knuckling it. I didn't know that. I didn't know that there was a solution. And uh, when Vince said five months, I about fell off my chair. There were three other guys there. I heard about acting beha- acting out behaviors I'd never even dreamed of. Um, but what I heard was this common thread. You know, we're all powerless. We're all doing something we don't want to do. Um, we're here for help. That's where it started. So it started in August 1985. Um, so um, fast forward, I you know, we never, my wife and I never reconciled. Uh, we stayed uh, married for another two years, uh, separated. Um, I was convicted that I wanted to try to reconcile. And, uh, and so I kept my wedding band on and, uh, I believe that that's what I should do. And I'm so grateful that I had that boundary. That was the first boundary that I learned, uh, adhere to your values. And, uh, I went to my first conference in, uh, my first SA conference, so a regional conference in Cleveland in October, and there was a woman there who was single and, and, and two years sober, and she said, don't even think about dating. She said, I'm, I'm two years sober, I'm not even there yet, but I computed in my head maybe 19, 1987, maybe I can date, uh, rec- recognizing I was still trying to reconcile a marriage, so go figure that, I'm a sexaholic. Um, but one day at a time, um, all I can say is um, that that urge to act out was lifted from me. Um, it, it just was. Uh, what I learned, uh, the tools of the program, you know, there were, there were three of us. You know, I never saw Vince again, okay? Vince was at my first meeting, and uh, he went back out the very next week. And he was so ashamed that he he put the the meeting material out on his front porch and we had to go get it and pick it up. And uh, I learned later, you know, Vince's behavior was flying into New York City to go to the bathhouses. And um, this was at the very entry point of the AIDS ec- epidemic. And he uh, contracted AIDS, and he died from his, his disease. But he got he got he got me to my first meeting. Um, I was in Rochester, Rochester for another three months, and I lost I I got laid off, but miraculously got the best job of my life, and had to move to Detroit. I moved to Detroit, city of a million people, no SA meetings. Uh, there was another S fellowship there, and uh, I attended that for a year. Um, but I came to my first SA conference in 1986 in St. Louis. I met my sponsor. Harvey was there. And uh, I, I had tried to start an SA meeting in in in, Rots- in Detroit. And uh, I tried to hijack the other S fellowship and convert that to an SA meeting. But uh, that got stopped. And I called that facility and said, I have a meeting, I, w- I want to do a meeting, but I had determined that the, the only day I, we could do a meeting in my schedule was on Tuesdays, and they offered me Sundays. So I'd go to this conference in, in St. Louis in 1986, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm hearing somebody do a talk, and one of the first times I ever heard the voice of God in my head was, have the meeting on Sunday, Dave. And I went back from St. Louis to Detroit. I called up the facility and I said, um, "Could I? Could we still do an SA meeting on Sunday?" And they, he, they said, "Sure." And um, I started the first SA meeting in Detroit in 1987 on Sunday. Our first, our first meeting. I couldn't even attend. I had to. I was out of town on a business trip, so one of the other guys held it. Within within a couple of weeks. We had we were having twenty people at a meeting in Detroit. This this facility was feeding people to us. S, the other S fellowship wasn't working, and uh, I you know I made lifelong friends at that meeting. Um, 
moved to Nashville in 1988. There were two meetings. Um, there are now 50, 60 plus. Um, so that's how I got here. I, w- I wanted to say real quickly, um, you know, a lot of life has happened in the, in the last 32 years. Um, I, I just wanted to tick off a couple of things that it, it have happened to me since I, I came into this fellowship that, you know, um, things I wouldn't have necessarily chosen, but um, have have shown me God's path for my life. Um, you know, I wouldn't have chosen to get uh, separated and, and then later divorced, but, you know, that's what it took to get me here. Um, I lost the job, which was a huge, I got laid off on a Monday, but I had just gone on a job interview in Detroit, and I went about a, and, and I I came back from that job interview, and my boss called me into the office that next day and told me that I was being laid off, which just crushed me. So my my wife had moved out. I didn't even know where she lived. I had just lost my job. I had interviewed for a job, but I they told me they called as I was walking out of my boss's office from being laid off. The new place that calls me, and I'm thinking, yes, God, yes. I go into my office, close the door. You did great on the interview, but we're not going to be able to tell you until next month, you know. And I just, I, I sat down and cried. <laughs> I just cried. I've lost my job. I've lost my wife. Um, what am I going to do? I went to my my men's prayer group that week, and I just broke down and sobbed with them. But I said, you know, it's going to be okay. I, I don't know how or why. Um, the next week I got called and told, hey, things worked out. Would you like to come to work for us? And uh, that's what got me to Detroit. I knew when I went to Detroit that I'd be moving to Tennessee. Um, I moved to Tennessee. I, I was driving 20 miles one way to a meeting uh, a couple times a week. Uh Slowly but surely, those meetings started to increase. Um, I met wonderful people. When when I, in the early, late 80s, early 90s in Nashville, there were probably as many women in the fellowship as there were men, almost. It was was close to, and there were a lot of young professionals. And uh, um, we learned how to relate to each other without being sexual. (laughs) It was it was amazing. Uh, we went on raft trips. We uh, um, you got to see Harvey do the hokey pokey sometime. It's it's really a hoot. Um, we had parties. We had get-togethers. We learned we learned how to uh, we learned how to socialize with one another. Um, after about four years of sobriety, I finally got a sponsor. You know, every place I went, I was the guy that had the most sobriety, and I had been working steps one, two, and three. And uh, you know, I think I told this story the other day, but uh, I went to Harvey and finally mustered up the courage to ask him to be my sponsor in 1989. And I said, "I'm ready to do step four. And he said, "Why don't we start again with step one? Tell me your story." And uh, so we started in step one. Uh, I'm kind of an overachiever. Um, I did uh, steps one through nine in the next three or four months. Um, so Harvey got me to uh, be the chairperson of the first SA conference, international conference in Nashville in 1990. And uh, he has a way of doing that. Uh, he travels all over the world, and I get, the, I get, I get, I get phone calls from all over the world uh, after he's been somewhere. I said, were you just in Australia? This, this dude just called me from Australia. Yeah, I gave him your number. Um, because I was single, uh, I was divorced and, uh, I decided that I could, uh, I, I might be able to remarry and, um, I started to date. Um, but I, I got my ex-wife to come to that, uh, to that first conference in 1990. And, uh, I was, I was hoping that, you know, she was not, she was not remarried. I was not remarried. I was uh, over four years sober, going on five years. Um, I thought there might be some hope. It turned out to be 
Uh, and I told her, told her my story. Uh, she denied it. Oh, that's not a problem. Um, I got her to go to some SNI meetings at that conference and hoping that she might identify. And she didn't. And so what it turned out to be, it was an opportunity to do my night step with my, with my ex-wife and tell her about how I had failed in our marriage. Um, I had my first date. Now she had already been engaged and had, had broken off, broken off. Uh, in fact, she was engaged before we were even divorced, but that's another story. Um, I had my first date in 1990 and, uh, um, Harvey walked me through six years of that. Um, I met my current wife of 21 years um, in 1994 after I had my second interaction with my ex-wife, another SA Inter International Conference in Rochester, 1994, and, and I met met her for dinner. I'm still single. She's still single. Um, and I really... Wondered, you know, is there an opportunity here? And, uh, and during that dinner, I realized that we had just gone in, in different paths and, uh, we were different people. And I, I grieved that, um, for several months. Um, but I had probably the biggest, one of the best awarenesses I've ever had in my recovery. And that was, I've got a great life. I had wonderful friends. Um, by that time, I had been dating for four years, and I, there were no prospects on the horizon. And I said, you know, if this is the way it's got to be, I can do this. God God will see me through this. I have a wonderful life. Um, I met my wife um, about six months later. And it was a, a classic experience. I met her through another sexaholic, um, friends of friends. Um, she was not, she was really attractive, but not a trigger. Go figure. Um, she was the wrong denomination. Um, and I, as I debated about even calling her the first time, I could hear Harvey's voice in, in my head. You're asking her out for a dinner. You're not asking her to marry you. Um, but she turned out to be um, my soulmate. You know, um, uh, she put up a, you know, she put up a, a lot with me, uh, me telling her story, uh, my story, kind of put pieces together for her, why I didn't touch her um, for quite a while. And uh, we got married uh, two days after my 11th sobriety birthday. Uh, everybody in our wedding party was... Uh, a member of SA. Um, my, I had ushers and usherettes, whatever you call the female version of an usher, and everybody was in the program. Um, my uh, Orthodox Jew sponsor um, read the uh, Old Testament lesson in my Christian wedding. Um, as I said yesterday, um, Harvey was there when uh, you know we we brought I. I brought my first son out of the delivery room. Uh, he was there when my, my dad and my mom had died. A lot of life has happened. I, I've, got, I've been laid off. I had to retire from that large industrial company that went bankrupt in, in 2008, 2009. Um, I found another job. I had my first son at 46. I had my second son at 48. Um, I'll be working the rest of my natural life. Um, they're 17 and 18 now. Um, I have a wonderful life. Um, my parents both died of cancer. Um, I spent three years away from my parents, um, as to protect myself. My dad was violent, uh, but we reconnected and had, had a peaceful, um, separation when he died and, uh, um, so a lot of good things, things I, I never could have dreamed of. Um, and so we've got some time, less than I really, um, I didn't realize this would take as long as it did, but 
Um, you know, I've been through, infer- you know, we were infertile. You know, we had to use in vitro to have our first son. We, we adopted our second son. Um, my parents have died of cancer. Uh, we've been through that. You know, I've moved three times. I've lost a couple of jobs. Um, but I haven't acted out. Um, I found ways uh, by working this program, working my steps. And, you know, today, um, 32 years in, I spend my, my days in 10, 11, and 12 uh, doing that inventory, um, cleaning my side of the street, um, trying to do more meditation, uh, connect, connecting with the God of my understanding who has been so good to me. And, um, and coming to meetings, you know, it's, uh, the guys that drive me crazy, I, I'm so grateful for this program. You know, the program is working the steps with a sponsor in this fellowship. You gotta have all three. You know, you gotta have a sponsor. You gotta work the steps and you gotta be in the fellowship. I have to have you people. I have to go to meetings. I, I I have to tell you when I checked out a woman's butt in the elevator, because I still do that occasionally. I don't like that I do it, but it's gotten better. Um, so anybody got questions or anybody want to share? The mic's open. Um, thanks. All right. Um, we have we have a few minutes, so if anyone would like to share, um, here are the guidelines for sharing at this meeting. If you'd like to share, please come ahead. Come up ahead of your turn and make a line by sitting in the assigned chairs up front. Um, when it's your turn, please share speak share speak clearly into the mic so that everyone can hear you. For the sake of time, please just ask a question without going on too much in too much detail about background information and participation. We avoid topics that can lead to dissension or distraction. We also avoid explicit sexual descriptions and sexual abusive language. The emphasis is on honesty, recovery, and healing, how to apply the 12 steps and the 12 traditions in our daily lives. No crosstalk, please. If someone feels another is getting too inappropriate or explicit or is focusing excessively on the problem rather than the solution, they may so signify by quietly raising their hand. Although this is an anonymous meeting, please remember that anonymity does not mean legal confidentiality. Please do not share any felony for which you have not been adjudicated, else we will be required to inform law officials to protect the injured. And please be mindful of what you share. Do not break your own or another member's anonymity. All right. We're open for sharing. Hey, I'm Jacob Sexhawk. Hey, Jacob. Um, being young in programming and sobriety, I just want to get your experience, strength, and hope on, uh, I guess, staying in the first step, letting go of ego, and just, you know, ways to uh, stay connected to God. Thanks. Thanks, Jacob. Um, you know, for, for me, because there was only one meeting a week, um, it was 1985, there were no cell phones. Um, the other three guys in the program were all married and, and their wives didn't know they were coming to the program. Um, there were a lot of, there, I, and I hadn't even thought about the concept of calling somebody at work during the day. That was a foreign concept to me. To me, you made phone calls after work in the privacy of your home and, uh, so I learned what I had to do, uh, and the most effective thing for me to do was to pray. And, and, and I learned this from our founder, um, the pray, the, the prayer that I, uh, prayed the most, uh, is two words. And, and that is thank you. Um, any, anytime I'm, I'm, I was triggered, and it's the short, it's short for thank you God for reminding me how much I need you. So, you know, when I got triggered, when I saw a trigger and I recognized that I, I either was already looking or I wanted to look, uh, what worked for me was thank you God and, and turning my head. Um, 
so that that connection with God, you know, bringing God into the equation. I, you know, I can turn my head automatically out of habit, and I I'll often do that. Um, but I always find that if I if I do that for any period of time and I don't bring God into the equation, I will definitely take a longer second look. <laughs> I can't control this. I'm I'm powerless. Uh, that is my problem. I have a lack of power, and uh, so when I fool myself, you know, by you know instinctively turning my head when I see something, um, and I don't, you know, I, and I do that. I do that. Um, but it's always so much better for me to say, thank you, God. I need you. Um, that's how I did it. And, uh, these guys were calling me all the time. Um, it was, it was amazing. You know, God was doing for me what I could not do for myself. I, I, I'm so codependent. I, you know, I, I didn't want to bother anybody, you know, particularly because their, their spouses didn't know, why is this guy calling you? You know, I, I, I could think up all those reasons. They were calling me. When when Judson, my friend in uh, recovery for, I, I, I met him in, in in St. Louis in 1986 too. He was from Nashville. Um, he was the first guy that called me at work, and it scared the crap out of me. And uh, you can call somebody at work, and you know I'm in, I'm in an open office con, you know concept. You know everybody can hear what's going on, and so we learned to talk in code. And today. Um, we, we talk about the ricochet thought, you know. Um, this thought bounces to that thought that bounces to this thought that bounces to a lust thought. We call it the ricochet. And uh, our code word for that is bing, bing, bing. You know, it went bing, bing, bing. So today I get a phone call from Seattle, Washington. I live in, I live in uh, Franklin, Tennessee. And I pick up the phone and, and I hear bing, bing, bing. <laughs> And I know exactly he just had a ricochet thought. He wanted to share that with me. You know, we, um, it, it, it blew my mind when, when, and then I learned, well, if he can make a phone call when he's at work, I can make a phone call at work. You know, having a cell phone and being able to walk away from my desk is, you know, gives me a little bit more anonymity. But when I gotta make a call, I gotta make a call. So, um, that's, that's what's worked for me. Anybody else? How are we doing on time here? We got about another couple of minutes. Um, you know, uh, I did a session yesterday talking about boundaries. Um, you know, it took me a while to be aware of what all my triggers are, and I'm, and I'm still becoming aware of those. But um, you know, obviously, you know, I was smart enough when I got married to get to away with the penthouse. When, when I got into recovery, I had to do away with Time Magazine. Um, because I instinctively went to the people section to see what kind of pictures were there or to the movie sections to see if, you know. So um, I stopped going to movies. Um, I went for, in 1987, I did not have a TV in my house. Um, and I did just fine. You know, I, I discovered the radio. There are, there's a lot of great programming on the radio. Um, um, I... I had to I had to adjust which music I listened to because there were so many triggers connected with my acting out to music. You know, f- fragrances are triggers for me. Um, new mown hay. There's a story to that. I live by a hayfield. Um, it, that, that's related to an experience from my childhood. Anything can trigger me. Um, so, you know, I didn't go to beaches for, for a number of years. Uh, I'm able to go, but it, I still have to be really careful at a beach. You know, um, when I, when I do my daily prayer, uh, um, all, I, I, I talk about God, uh, helping me, me to stay sober that day, um, I'm powerless over lust and all the things that trigger my lust, including attractive women, teenage girls, fantasizing, sexualizing, objectifying, um, pictures, TV, movies, music, um, and all my characteristics, all my 
all my character defects, which are all centered around my self-centered fear. Um, my lust, my anger, my judgmental spirit, my people-pleasing, my dishonesty, my pride, my gossip, my worry, my feeling that I'm not enough, um, my delusion that if I have certain things, I'll be happy, my comparing myself with others. The hardest part about me being come, coming to a conference is hearing how you guys are working your program, and it's so much better than mine. Um, so, I, you know, those are the things I work on today, you know, is doing that. It took me 24 years to do a, a, a written 10 step. And I was in crisis when I did it. I, my company was going through bankruptcy. Um, I had a 10-year-old and 11-year-old, and I'm 57 years old. And uh, the largest industrial co- corporation in the world is going bankrupt. And um, I have to find a job. And I was in crisis. And I read in, in uh, this book right here um, that find a time in the day when you can when you can do a 10-step. Because in the AA Big Book, it talks about at, at night. I couldn't do it at night. So I started doing a, a written 10-step at, at, uh, at noon every day during my lunch hour. And uh, I talk about my lust hits. I talk about the things that I do right. And I talk about the things that I need to work on, and then I and I then I write a prayer, and it works for me. Seeing it in a black and white, and then I do an annual review with my sponsor, and uh, talk about the stuff that's happened over the last year, and talk about things I need to do. Uh, so it keeps it keeps working for me. I'm going to keep coming back. I'm glad glad you guys are here, and uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. Thanks. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for your experience, strength, and hope. Um, before we close, um, if there's any, anything you've heard at this meeting is strictly the opinion of the individual participant, the principles of SA are found in our 12 steps and 12 traditions. Remember that we never identify ourselves publicly in the press, radio, TV, social media, or films. Neither does anyone speak for SA. This is an anonymous program. Please keep the name, address, and phone number of anyone you meet or learn about in SA to yourself. The shares we have heard here are told in confidence. Please do not repeat what you have heard about any other member to anyone who was not actually here at the meeting at the time that it was shared. Please, what we say here, when we leave here, let it stay here. Here, here. All right, let's close with the serenity prayer. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.